So today is Monday, the 28th of December, 2020. It's just three more days until the end of this year. So we see that the days and nights are steadily passing by. Um, but even though the days and nights pass by in this manner, um, every day, really our bodies, these conditioned phenomena of our physical forms, they are passing by with every single in and out breath. And this is just the natural state of these physical sankharas, things that have causes and conditions which um, bring them into existence. And these bodies are a collection of earth, water, fire and air. And then the mind comes and attaches to them, taking it as being me or mine. And ever since we were born, we've had this feeling, we've felt that this thing really is me and mine. And the reason that we have that is because of the strength of ignorance. And something which binds over our hearts is a fetter for the mind. So we haven't had true knowledge into them ever since we were a child. And we believe in this self, and we do everything for the self. When we study, we do that for me, thinking that I will gain from it. And then we go to gain knowledge, thinking that we'll get good work. But some people, if they have thick defilements, they don't put any effort into their studies and their work, uh, or they can't get a good job. And then later on, as adults, it can be easy for them to fall into uh, the paths of deprivation. But for those people who have mindfulness and wisdom, they'll be able to find their way out of this state. And so for those people um, who have barami, they'll see the danger in suffering, the drawbacks of this suffering. And through doing this, they can perceive to a degree uh, this noble truth of suffering. Just like all of, or most of the great monks in Thailand of this last century, uh, the majority of them were born in the northeast, where the conditions were very tough. The weather was harsh, the quality of their life was quite low. And ever since they were born, they met with a lot of difficulty. But this became beneficial for them, and it was easy for them to see into the noble truth of suffering quickly. There were some of these great teachers who were born in cities and who had studied to a higher level. And they could see into this uh, noble truth of suffering, but they were few, even though they had worked and gained high positions in their occupations. Uh, they could still see into this truth of suffering, but it was, or normally they could only do that with difficulty. So these this Arya Satya is a noble truth, the first being the noble truth of suffering. 
we see that when we go off to study or when we work, then there's worries and anxiety that we have about that. And maybe we get ill, and then we'll worry whether we're going to be able to carry on with our jobs or not. Or if we have a high position in work, um, we're in charge of others, then there can be a lot of problems that arise. And sometimes we may fear that we may lose our status or our position to the point where people get insomnia and they can't eat and they suffer a lot. So for those people who don't have wisdom, they won't be able to find their way out of this in a wholesome way, but rather they'll try to uh, seek an escape through alcohol or through going out at night or gambling. But really this just digs them further into this mess and they become more and more deluded. But for those people who have barami and who have some wisdom, um, they'll search for a decent way out of this suffering. And perhaps they'll think and recollect some peace that they'd experienced from before. And maybe previously they had uh, sat in meditation and experienced a degree of calm through that. And so they'll ask themselves, well, why was I peaceful before? But now life is so chaotic. Why am I suffering so much? So they return to that practice and take up the breath as their object and look at it as it comes and leaves. Maybe they read through some books or <clears throat> read through the scriptures and then practice what they've learned. So they gain an interest in this path of suffering that the Buddha taught. There are those who go and seek out uh, people who can teach them. Maybe they go into a monastery and they're able to meet with a teacher who can uh, suggest a way of meditation. Or they may have friends who can guide them in this way. But when the mind is chaotic like this, we can ask ourselves, well, if we think that this thing is really mine, that this mind belongs to me, why does it suffer in this way? Why can't I control it? And so people who think like this, they're able to find a way out of that suffering. And so the monks that we meet, or the Buddha himself, he taught uh, all the ways that can relieve us, this, this whole path of practice, right from the beginning of developing generosity. He suggests to offer food to the monks in the morning frequently, to sacrifice, to not be selfish, to develop kindness. And so there are some people who have also ordained in this Buddhist religion and then later on disrobed. But because of that time they spent as a monk, they're very familiar and feel very close to Buddhism. So they're able to study into the Dhamma, they're able to practice what they've learned. So we see that nowadays it's normal for people to not have much moral integrity. And they just don't see the danger in that lack of virtue. They don't see the benefits in caring for Sila. That it gives us coolness, this internal peace, 
a coolness both in the body and in the mind to one degree. But there are very, very few people who can realize this, who are able to keep the five precepts. But really, in order to be born as a true human, a human in the mind, these five precepts are necessary. But the Buddha said that it's very, very difficult to be born as a human, but what he was talking about was a human in the mind. We see that now there are many people in this world, far more than there were before. In each country, uh, the population generally is growing, and it's much larger now than it was 50 years ago. In Thailand, for example, 50 years ago, there was just about uh, 10 million people. But now that's gone all the way up to 70 million people. It's seven times more than what it was before. So we see that there are more bodies of people in this world than there were. So why is it that gaining a human birth is difficult? Well, what the Buddha was talking about was being a human in the heart. And now many people, uh, even though they're born into human bodies, they use this life to compete with one another, to try and cheat one another out of things. So we can ask ourselves during, or for the average person, during just one day, how much time do they spend being human? How many hours? That's very, very few, very a few the number of hours. Those who have a decent level of morality, who have goodness in them. So mostly there's just people, but there are very few humans. And even Lumpur Cha, after he had been teaching his lay disciples for many, many years, he asked them once, uh, how many people were devoted to keeping the five precepts for the rest of their lives. And even though the sala was full of his lay disciples, no one answered him. Everyone was just trying to avoid eye contact. So even this, even those people who had practiced with the Krubhajan for so long, it was difficult for them to determine to keep these five precepts for the rest of their lives. But for those people who have developed their barami before, they're able to do this. They're able to keep the precepts well. But it's also normal that sometimes we uh, neglect our virtue because we don't see the benefit in them. Sometimes that's missing from our minds. We're not able to see the danger in not keeping them. And so it's possible to slip up on some of the aspects of sila. For example, those people who have occupations uh, that require them to kill other beings, it can be very difficult for them to keep these precepts. But most of us don't have those kinds of occupations, so it's easier. Really, the most difficult of these five precepts is the last one for most people, that of abstaining from alcohol or other intoxicants. It can really be a very big problem in people's lives. Um, and sometimes people drink, but they don't harm 
any other beings. So there's just a bit of danger that arises from that. But there are also those people who get drunk and then they drive and they can cause many deaths through that and through car accidents. But if there are those people whose mindfulness is still somewhat intact, they realize that they're drunk and so they refuse to drive. In that case, they are just destroying themselves. They're not destroying anyone else. It's just their own body and mind that they are harming, that they're damaging. So you need to understand that um, this alcohol that does uh, harm our minds because it causes our minds to commit all kinds of bad kamma, all kinds of unskillful actions. And if we die in a drunken state, then we'll be reborn in a bad place. And even if we die while we're sober, but right at that point of death, we recollect a time that we were drunk, that too can become a cause for our rebirth in a bad place. So alcohol really does have a danger in, in this way. And we need to try to perceive that danger, to try to see the harm in alcohol and other intoxicants. And there was even one time when, during the time of the Buddha, there was a monk who was very skilled in psychic powers, uh, but he became intoxicated and he lost all of his mindfulness. And the Buddha said that in this state, he wouldn't even be able to defeat a tiny snake. So we see that not keeping these precepts, it does bring danger to us. If we can keep the five precepts fully, then we are 100% human. But if we're missing just one of those precepts, then we lose our humanity by 20%. But if people are really struggling to keep them, maybe they can try to keep these five precepts for five days a week, and then two, for two days a week, they can keep four precepts and try to kind of increase things in this way. So we need to try to see the benefits in keeping virtue and the danger in not keeping it. And some people break these precepts because of the stress that they get from their work. Maybe they're, um, they're in a very high position in work, which uh, means that they are in a very tense situation. They get easily stressed by it. But there are other methods of relieving that stress other than resorting to intoxicants. We can chant, for example. And if we become skilled at chanting, then this brings up a radiance in the hearts. And it also helps us to have more mindfulness when we go back to work. So we're able to uh, complete our work in a more effective manner. So when we see the harm in not being generous and not keeping precepts, then this will give us energy to keep these things. And as we carry on doing it, um, then we'll also be interested in meditation, in cultivating peaceful states of mind. 
And perhaps we had done this previously and experienced that peace. And then we can ask ourselves, well, why aren't we experiencing that now? But it's also natural for things to go up and down in this way. When our minds are able to gain a knowledge or an awareness of all of the sense impressions that arise in the mind, um, we'll see that these sense impressions can stir the mind up. And just like water that is originally clear, but colored dye has been added to it, the water will change in accordance with the color of that dye. And it's also the same for the mind that has these sense impressions arise. And then the greed, hatred and delusion will use those uh, to change the mind, to alter it. So therefore, what do we do? Well, we need to train these minds. So the Buddha taught us about cultivating, uh, developing in generosity, in virtue, that these two qualities bring us the benefit of happiness. And this happiness, it's heaven. That's what heaven is. And so generosity, virtue, it brings a fullness. It brings a sense of ease into our lives and into our minds. And it has benefit in this way. But it's also possible for us to get distracted and get kind of intoxicated in the things of this world. So the Buddha taught further and to see the danger in the cycle of samsara, the cycle of birth and death. And really, in the space of one day, we die many, many times in our minds. Um, if we're just going to talk about the death of the body, then that's too far away. What we really mean by this death is death internally, death of the mind. So when the mind is in a chaotic state, <clears throat> then we should practice and we should take up renunciation, ordination. And there's both external ordination and internal ordination. But by taking up this path of practice, we're ordaining our hearts. But we're using a meditation object. And what should we use? What meditation object is suitable for us? Well, for those who have a strong faith faculty, then they can use that and recite the word Buddha. For those who are more disposed towards wisdom, they can contemplate emptiness. And they should be able to do this with ease. Seeing all things as being empty, whether they are physical or mental phenomena. And these bodies, when we separate them out into the elements and then separate them out even further, we'll see them as being empty. So do we see that? Do we see that in the body? That when it dies, then the breath leaves. And then the fire element leaves as well. And the body becomes very cool. If we touch it, then it feels cool. And uh, this can really kind of shake us up because it's, it's different from other things. So say a, uh, a piece of wood. I mean, that's always been cool, but it doesn't kind of stir us up 
in the same way because it's just natural for it to be cool. It was never warm. But these bodies are different that before they were warm, but when the fire elements leaves it, then they become cool. There's no vijnana, there's no consciousness, there's no mind within it. And so, or then it dies, and then it's natural uh, for it to have this coolness. So it changes its state like this. Other things, trees, for example, when they die, they don't change so much. But these bodies, they can change quite a lot. There's no fire elements, and then the uh, liquids in the body change as well, and they start to rot until it's just the earth element that's left. And then a lot of bacteria can come and infest this body, so people have to go and burn them. And if the fire is really hot, then there's nothing left. There's not even any bones left over. So just like uh, when they dropped nuclear bombs and the heat got up to thousands of degrees Celsius and there was just nothing left, or the bones had melted. To ask ourselves, well, where is a self within that? If we contemplate it well, we'll see that it's all empty that everything in this world is empty, all material things are empty, they're just conventions, things that are anicca, dukkha, anatta, and constant, stressful, and not self. And the truth of them is that they are empty. So we can use this as a meditation object. And this is the method of using wisdom to give rise to inner firmness and collectedness. Some people, people, however, like to just stay with one word, with Buddha, Dhamma, or Sangha. They've got a strong faith which can easily bring their mind to stillness. So they train themselves in this way. Whenever any sense impression arises, they can just revert back to samadhi to pass over that. Just go back to the word Buddha, or Dhamma, or Sangha. And this is able to bring their minds to peace. Whenever anything arises, whether they um, experience any sensation, they just come back to this word buddho, buddho, and the mind is brought into one point. It gets collected together like this. So this is the way of using samadhi first, using that to suppress the defilements, and it's another means of samatha. But some people don't like to do this. They don't like to just stay with one word and focus on it in this way. They prefer to think, to look into cause and effect, to try to understand things. So they should use wisdom to bring their minds to peace. And it's possible to do this as well. Anupucha gave the simile of being like two different people who have different occupations. One person works in the fields and they're skilled in that, and they're able to make their living through that. Another person has a fruit orchard, and they are proficient in, in growing these fruit trees, so they can gain money in that way, and uh, they can carry on living uh, through uh, the money they get from growing that fruit. But people's skills differ. 
So just like our occupations differ, and so uh, the meditation objects we use can differ as well. Some people don't think very much, and other people think a lot. Uh, but both of these character types um, can be brought into peace. When our minds are in a calm state, then we come back to contemplate again and we'll be able to see into the state of emptiness. The mind doesn't proliferate, um, so it feels very at ease. We can see arising and ceasing happening constantly. We'll see into the nature of conventions and through doing this, liberation arises. So when we contemplate into emptiness effectively, we'll see that really there's no Dhamma hall. There's just things arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. And knowledge comes up as born in this way. We'll see sankharas or conditioned phenomena come and go, arise and cease. And there's a great sense of brightness uh, that imbues the mind. There's no self there. There's no house. There's no home. It's all just conventions. And we see the body in this light as well. If our minds are peaceful, then we'll see all these things constantly deteriorating. And then we'll wonder how it's possible to attach to them. So just like well, we see a Dharma hall constantly deteriorating, this body constantly deteriorating. And this is the truth of conditioned phenomena, that they're of this nature to arise, last for a bit, and then pass away. And the Dhamma, or seeing the Dhamma, happens like this. When we perceive things in this way, then the mind becomes weary. It becomes weary of the things in this world. It doesn't want anything from it. Even if the whole world were made of diamonds or gold, and someone were to come and offer it to us, we wouldn't be interested in it, because we'd see that we have to die, and all the things of this world must decay that everything arises and ceases. And when we die, then what are we going to want from this world? You see that we have to die. So this body and the things here, they don't have any value or any real meaning for us. But the Dhamma that we've seen into, that we've come to know for ourselves, that has immense value because it's able to solve all of the suffering in our minds. So seeing the Dhamma in this way, the amount of inner stress we feel lessens and lessens. And the faith that we had before becomes even more firmly established. So we'll see that seeking out the Dhamma is of great benefit. It's a great wealth for us. Um, the wealth that we gain from generosity and through helping out other people. And even if we need to occupy ourselves or we need to work in order to find external wealth, we use this in good means, in good ways. So we use that uh, to be generous, um, to uh, help our families live comfortably. 
But for those people who live a lay life but have seen the Dhamma, um, what will be of most importance to them is Nibbana. That Nibbana becomes the abiding um, kind of occupation of their hearts. So just like Anandapintaka or Lady Visaka, um, they had uh, Nibbana as the focal point of their minds. And even though they had a family, they didn't just toss away the practice. Um, they had to look after their children and the other members of their family, but they still trained their minds at the same time. It's just that uh, the progress that they had uh, was sometimes slower than their children even. There were times when their children had developed to a higher level of Dharma than they had. So when people see into this nature of arising and ceasing, then the faith that they have becomes well established and it becomes established in wisdom. And they're really set on this path of practice to try to find a way out of sangsara. When people see the Dhamma in this way, then there's no eighth life. And they have this great faith to really practice, to train themselves, to train the mind. And you try to stay close to the great teachers who are able to teach them. And through this, um, a strong conviction in this path of practice uh, can arise, that they're able to do it. So initially, meditation and developing samadhi can be something quite, that's quite tough. And sometimes it feels like we just can't do it. But as we carry on practicing and wisdom arises, then the joy we get from samadhi can be present through for three days and three nights, that the mind is constantly cool throughout this time. And we see the mind as it proliferates and gives rise to a sense of self. And we're always watching over our minds, seeing all things as being empty, that there's no true abiding self in any of it. See all people as being just like biological machines that are moving about. So when we see in this way, then this gives us the energy uh, to free ourselves from suffering. So we have faith like this, and we carry on practicing. We don't stop. And the laziness that we feel uh, constantly gets less and less. And the effort we have increases steadily. We don't have to even talk about morning and evening chanting. That will just come naturally to us. So initially, sometimes we're able to gain peace from our meditation, sometimes not. But in the end, uh, samadhi will become firmly established and our hearts will feel at ease. And we'll just be very keen on doing a lot of meditation. It'll be very easy for us to do that. So when the practice is easy, then it's just easy. Our minds, we just have to bring up an object to focus into our minds and they immediately gather into peace. But in the beginning, it's tough. But what's important is that we just carry on going without stopping. And when we do that, we will experience peace. When our minds are peaceful, then sense impressions just can't enter into them. 
and there's a great sense of ease and freedom of the heart. So samadhi has benefits in this way. And wisdom, gaining knowledge, has great benefit for us, seeing into these four noble truths. Seeing into the state of anatta, of not-self, um, and seeing into clearly into this nature uh, of the body, that it's something that's inconstant. So we try to bring up mindfulness so that we're always aware of the state of our mind. And we don't just toss this practice away. Whatever physical posture we're in, uh, we know what our minds are like. We know whether they're attracted or averse to something. We're always following up on these hearts of ours. Always trying to bring them back into a, a centered place. And when it's like this, then all of the seven factors for awakening uh, will be present in the mind. Whether we're talking about mindfulness or uh, serenity or samadhi or joy, um, these will all be there in the mind. And really all of these things just come together in the practice that our minds are peaceful, we're trying to bring up mindfulness constantly, we're trying to firmly establish our mind, bringing up wisdom, that all of these things are here just within this single practice. And the mind becomes equanimous uh, due to it. So Lumpur Cha, he didn't separate things out like this or explain things in detail, uh, because really it all comes together in the meditation practice. All of the wings for the wings of awakening that the Buddha taught, um, they're all right here. So it's not necessary for us to study the theory uh, too much. Because in the end, we just see the body as being something empty. We see it as just being a collection of earth, water, fire and air. That there's no true self in it. And just through... Understanding this, then clear knowledge arises in our hearts. So it's possible for that clarity to come up uh, throughout the entire year, that there's wisdom arising, the mind's always in a state of samadhi. And we're able to see into the nature of conventions and the heart becomes liberated. But sometimes in the state we want to contemplate further but the mind just won't do it. It's just like a tree that has given out off all its fruits already. And so it has to rest for another year before it can bear fruit again. So sometimes the practice is like this. But for those people who have a lot of barami, uh, they can get through all the stages of the practice in just one go. Um, they can pass through the stages of uh, Sotapanna, uh, Sakatagami, Anagami, and Arahant in just one go, and this shows that their Barami is very great. And so there were Arahants at the time of the Buddha who were like this, and there were also Arahants in this day and age who were like this as well, who can attain in just one time. But if our spiritual maturity isn't so complete, uh, then we have to carry on developing Barami. Uh, destroying these uh, kilesas and the fetters 
bit by bit. For those people who have attained to the state of Sotapanna, uh, these five precepts will be a natural quality for them. They won't be interested in drinking alcohol anymore. Nothing will be able to get them to drink. Even if people try to put pressure on them, or if the drinks are very cheap, they just won't be interested in it because they see the harm in those things. And they have these five precepts as a natural um, state for them. So they're just not interested in these things um, because they've found another path that leads out of suffering. And they have faith in the Buddha's teachings. And the Buddha taught that alcohol destroys our mindfulness. So they know um, that it's bad in this way, that it just leads to deterioration and degeneration. That if we get drunk, um, it's possible for all of our goodness to be destroyed in just one single moment. And in just one flash of anger, um, so much can be destroyed. So these five precepts that the Buddha taught are a natural quality of sotapanas. So therefore, I ask for all of you to be really well established in sila, to try to uh, develop meditation, to collect the mind. And in doing this, it's possible to permanently destroy all the defilements. So I do this a lot, develop this, this path a lot. And because this opportunity that we have right now is very good, we've been born a human, we've been able to meet with the Buddha's teachings. And so really try and do your best with this opportunity that you have. <laughs>